Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Cover. I'm Jeff Ayers, and my wonderful co-host, John Robb, cannot be with us tonight, which is his loss, because I have the pleasure to chat with the New York Times bestselling author, Philip Margolin, a true master of the legal thriller. His new novel, A Matter of Life and Death, comes out on March 9th, and uh, we're recording this a week before the book comes out. So, uh, Phil, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. I appreciate the opportunity. Cool. So let's talk about A Matter of Life and Death. What is uh, the story behind it? Well, I, I was a criminal defense lawyer for 25 years before I started writing full-time. And my one of my specialties was murder cases. And uh, I did about, oh, a dozen uh, death penalty cases where, you know, if you if you lost the case, your your client could die, and I thought it'd be interesting to um, write a book where Robin Lockwood, who's uh, the heroine of my latest uh, series, uh, handled a death penalty case, so readers could see what it's actually like to do one, and some of the emotional roller coasters that you go uh through when you're when you're doing this type of case but i obviously didn't want to do it in a lecture series so um basically what happens is that uh joseph Lattimore uh is a short order cook and and uh decent but uh, but just so so boxer and uh he's not good enough to get a lot of any sort of fights that will pay uh, a lot of money. And he's married and has a child. He's madly in love with his wife and his kid. And he loses his job as a short order cook, and the family becomes homeless. Uh, and so there's a, there is a national problem with homelessness. And uh, I live in Portland, Oregon, and we have a large homeless population. So... Uh, Joe is desperate to get money to help his family, and uh, he's approached by a shady character who tells him that there are illegal, no-holds-barred fights, and he can get $300 for fighting in one of these events. Well, the temptation is just too much for Joe, and he does go, uh, and in the course of the fight, uh, he believes that he's killed his opponent. And he uh, is then blackmailed by the people that are running the fights into uh, burglarizing a, a house in one of the wealthiest areas of Portland. And when he goes in, thinking that his the only thing he has to do to get out of this mess is to open up a safe, he's been given the combination, he's been told that there's no one home, uh, and get some jewels out of the safe. If he does that, they'll they'll get rid of a video that shows him killing this guy. And uh, he's desperate. He goes in, and there's a dead body in the in the living room. And the dead body is the body of the wife of Judge Anthony Carrasco, who is a uh, really uh, uh, terrible person. And um, Carrasco, we learned early on in the book, has met a 
gorgeous prostitute in San Francisco at the American Bar Association convention and uh, moved her to Portland. And he's just madly in love with her and uh, infatuated with her. And his wife finds out, and she's very wealthy, and she says she's going to divorce him. So um, the, with the wife out of the way, this clears everything for Carrasco. And uh, Joe is set up and arrested uh, based on anonymous tip. And he asks Robin Lockwood to represent him. And the case is open and shut. Carrasco, who would normally be a suspect, has an iron-clad alibi. He was having dinner with a young district attorney at the, at the time the murder occurred. Uh, Joe's fingerprints and are in the house. Uh, he was seen coming out of the house by the judge and the young DA. So this case is a case that anybody... Uh, even without a law degree, should win in a walk. And Robin is faced with trying to save this guy's life. Um, and for people who haven't read the Lockwood series, she's an interesting character. Uh, she worked her way through Yale Law School uh, by fighting on, on television in pay-per-view uh, <clears throat> mixed martial arts uh, bouts. So she was a nationally ranked fighter and uh, was knocked out pretty brutally in her first year at Yale Law School and decided to stop fighting and uh, and concentrate on law. But she's got this combination of uh, brains. Yale's one of the top, top law schools. And uh, she's a trained fighter. And so she's in a position where she really believes her client's innocent, but there's no way. Uh, that she can think of initially to uh, clear his name. So that's basically the background story for uh, uh, for a matter of life and death. Well, let's talk about Robin Lockwood a little more because this is the fourth one in that, and uh, I I know that you're continuing her character. How did she originate? Yeah, well, I I had uh, started off. It's really interesting. Uh, in 1993, after not having a book published in 12 years, I had, I had, when I was in my 30s, uh, I got uh, Heartstone and The Last News of Man published and then stopped for 12 years because I was, my law practice got really exciting. In fact, the year 1978, when, the, when Heartstone, my first book, came out, I argued at the U.S. Supreme Court. And in between the two books, I started doing major murder cases and appeals. So uh, 12 years went by without a book. And then uh, at a dinner party, I got an idea for a third book. And I thought it would be sort of cool to have a third book published. Uh, knocked off, gone but not forgotten in about five months with a full-time law practice and raising two kids with my wife. Um, send it to my editor, or my agent, pardon me, uh, really with no expectations. I wish I could say I knew it was going to be this like massive bestseller, but honestly, all I thought was it would be really fun if I could get another book published, and that was that. And uh, it was right when the legal thriller craze started, and the publishers were dying to get their hands on lawyers who had written a, a book about law and and 
There was even an article in the New York Times that said that the publishers would were frothing at the mouth to get their hands on a criminal defense lawyer who'd written the book. So uh, it just turned out I was in the right place at the right time. Gone But Not Forgotten became this massive bestseller. Um, and then I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, uh, and I, I decided I didn't want to do a series because I didn't want to be forced to, you know, put the same character in every book. So for years I really resisted it. Uh, but then after writing about seven books, I, I guess it was nine books, um, I, I wrote uh, books with Amanda Jaffe in them. And they became really popular. So I sort of got over my fear of series. Uh, I did that. I did the Washington Trilogy with Dana Cutler. And in between, did a lot of standalones. And then uh, several years ago, I went over to St. Martin's. Uh, I'd been with Harper for quite a while, and, just, and uh, there was a really interesting opportunity to go over to uh, St. Martin's, and they wanted me to do a series. And so I, a lot of my books have very strong female characters. But in real life, if a uh, woman and a man fight, uh, the man's probably going to win just because he has upper body strength and there are various other factors that usually weigh more than the woman. So uh, I was thinking, what could I do to level the playing field uh, so that if, if, uh, if Robin got into a physical situation, which a number of my other characters have, uh, women characters, how, how could I make her believable um, if she won, actually won the fight. And I thought, well, you know, there are a lot of women that are professional fighters now in UFC and, and boxing. And so I thought, well, it might be interesting uh, if she uh, uh, is not only a brilliant lawyer, but also is a professional fighter. And so that idea is what sort of got me going with Robin. So then I, I, I tried to figure out how do, I, how do I mesh the two, law and the fighting. And uh, her backstory is that she grew up in a small Midwestern town with three brothers who were all uh, championship wrestlers in high school. So she was the youngest, and when she got to high school, she wanted to be on the wrestling team. And uh, the coaches and everyone, they, the coach didn't mind, and the other high school kids didn't mind, but some of the parents were upset that a girl would be wrestling with their uh, male children. So they convinced the school board to ban her. Her dad hired a lawyer to fight this, and the lawyer won. And that's what inspired Robin to want to be a, a lawyer. Uh, and then when she got to college, she went to a state school undergraduate that was a top nationally ranked wrestling power. And so she knew she had no chance of actually making the wrestling team. But she uh, uh, knew about a gym in town where they were t training people for mixed martial arts. And so that's how she got involved with uh, initially just doing it for fun and then uh, realizing she was good enough to compete professionally, and she does work her way up uh, 
before that first year in law school when she quit uh, to a national ranking. Okay. Um, well, you did mention um, Gone But Not Forgotten, which was, when that came out, that was the very first book I had read of yours, and then I went back and read Heartstone and Left as Men, and I was just blown away by how amazing that was, and I've been reading your books ever since. Um, I'm, I want to talk to you about the miniseries they made. Brooke Shields played Betsy, and then they also made a Kinda film. Uh, yeah, um, they, they made Last Innocent Man. Uh, Ed Harris played the lead, even though they changed the first name. Um, how did those come about? Oh, well, there's a really cute story about Last Innocent Man. I actually, you mentioned Ed Harris, but you didn't mention me. I had a a role in that movie. I was the 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 uh, uh, jury foreman in the big murder case, and should have won an Oscar, but was stabbed in the back. You know, there's a lot of politics that goes into this. But uh, actually, uh, what happened with that is. and it's really cute. Uh, the Last Innocent Man was published in hardcover in 1981, and it, it sold respectably, but nowhere near bestseller uh, numbers. And then uh, my agent at the time could not sell it to paperback. And the reason uh, he, he there was an editor at, uh, I think it was Valentine, that really wanted to buy the book in paperback, but this was back in the 80s, uh, and all the mysteries had to either be set in New York or Chicago or San Francisco. Uh, a, a mystery set in Portland, Oregon, the, the people up the, this, the editor eventually became very, very big editor, but at that point uh, he had to get the approval of people higher up. And they said nobody would be interested in reading a book set in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, that things really, <laughs> yeah. really changed. Uh, nowadays, you know, they have mysteries set in London and Scandinavian countries and Alaska and Thailand and Laos. But at that time, it was really very uh, snobby. And if it wasn't set in New York or San Francisco, no one wanted to get So uh, then what happened was back in, I guess it was 1985 or 86, Dan Bronson, who is a terrific screenwriter, and Donna Dubrow, um, who was, I believe, worked for HBO at the time, optioned, optioned the book for, uh, I think it was like $2,500, very low option price. And uh, uh, Dan wrote a phenomenal screenplay. As a matter of fact, it was nominated for the equivalent of an Emmy. They didn't have Emmys for cable at that time, but it was nominated for, nowadays it would have been for an Emmy. And uh, they they wanted to have a um, uh, a free option because after the year was up, they, they were on the verge of getting a deal, but they really, you know, by the time the option ran out, they hadn't got a deal. So my agent said, look, if this book, and we had another offer that was like five times or four times what they were, uh, what they had paid, but uh, they needed, they wanted a free option, and my agent said, give them the free option because if this book is ever going to be made into a movie, it'll be because Dan Bronson's screenplay is so good. So we said, sure, but um, I get a call, uh, and and what what my agent did was 
he tacked on another uh, $25,000 to the purchase price because we're giving him the free year if it got sold. So it was way over what you normally pay for a, for a, 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 for a movie. Um, well, I get a call from um, my agent, and he said, I have good news and bad news. He says, the good news is HBO wants to make this movie. They had lined up Ed Harris and Roger Spottiswood, who was a really top director at that time. Um, they had great cast with Oscar nominees and Tony winners. And he said, the problem is, uh, in addition to the money you're supposed to get for for selling your rights, you, you also have a $10,000 consulting fee that I that he had put in. So I would get extra more money. And he said, HBO was really... Uh, they were willing to pay the extra money for the screenplay because of the deal that Dan had made, but they were absolutely adamant they would not pay an extra 10000 So I told my agent, I said, look, I said, this is probably my only chance to ever be in a movie. If I'll drop the consulting fee if they'll put me in as an actor and I'll do it for nothing. So uh, uh, he, we did the deal and he actually got me some money for, for acting. And I had the most fun. Um, I had two lines, and uh, I got to be on the set for about eight days, and I got friendly with the uh, producer, um, and and uh, he let me use the sound equipment and sit in on daily. So, you know, I told him I had no idea how you make a movie. I'd never even thought about making a movie. And asked him if I could hang out, and he said, sure. And they were really super nice to me. And then the movie turned out to be very, very good. Uh, it got, I think, six nominations for what was in the Ace Awards: Best Actor, Best Movie. Uh, got great reviews, so it was a it was a big success. And I and I had uh, really a lot of fun being on the set. And decided I was not going to have another career as an actor. I'm not very good. <laughs> I was good for two lines, but I decided I probably did not have a a, a career in Hollywood. <laughs> um, is there any chance of anything down the road with Hollywood for any of your other books? You know, it's it's really strange. For quite a long time, I had uh, an option on at least one of my books, and sometimes more than one. But uh, things have changed with movies and TV, and I have not had a uh, an offer in quite a while. And they pop up from time to time, but... Uh, the last one I had was the 2005 when uh, Gone But Not Forgotten was made into a miniseries with Brooke Shields. So that yeah. was the last last time. So it's been a while. Um, I think it'll be fun, but I'll tell you quite frankly, it's it's uh, uh, the the Gone But Not Forgotten. I had no input whatsoever, and it was sort of fun seeing what they did with my material. But uh, I sort of look at that as a movie deals as as like icing on the cake you know it's it's free money because you've done all the work already you've written the book and they're just you know buying something you've already done so it'd be fun if it happened but right now no okay well i'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed because some of these novels of yours would make great films or even a tv series with some of your serious characters um thanks talk to oh yeah um Talk to me about Worthy Brown's daughter and Woman with a Gun, because oh, they are sort of outside your usual what I would expect from you. 
Okay, well, I think Worthy Brown's Daughter is the absolute best book I've ever written. And it took me 30 years to write that book. Um, what happened was, as I, I think I just I had mentioned, that there's a 12-year gap between um, the uh, the the uh, uh, Last Innocent Man, 1981, and Gone Not Forgotten came out in 1993. So I really was just concentrating on my law career. But um, I came across... I'm blanking on the name of the case, but I, I, I was, I think it was in the, either the Oregon Historical Society Journal or, or, or the Oregon Bar Journal, someplace there was an article about Holmes v. Ford. Holmes v. Ford was an 1853 uh, Oregon Territorial Supreme Court case that held that you could not have slaves in Oregon. And it's really interesting. Usually when you mention slavery, people think about Mississippi and Alabama, but there are over 70 slaves in in the Oregon Territory, which included what's now the state of Washington and the state of Oregon. And it was not clear whether Oregon was going to join the Union as a free uh, state or a a slave state. And uh, Holmes v. Ford, the, the, the facts of it were just heartbreaking. Uh, Colonel Nathaniel Ford was a very influential person in um, uh, Missouri, which was a slave state. And uh, then he lost all his money because the economy went belly up. So uh, he did what a lot of uh, people did in those days. If you were a failure, one area just moved. And if you moved to Oregon, uh, you could get uh, a, uh, I think it was a square mile of land for free and and two square miles if you were married because they wanted people to develop the territory so he 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 had a lot of slaves and he had sold off a lot of them but he told the Holmes family which is the father mother and several children uh that he owned if you come with me to Oregon and help me start a farm I'll free you uh well, he'd already sold some of their children. So, uh, you know, he said, if you don't come, I'll sell you off. I'll sell everybody off. So they came with him, helped him do the farm, and then he reneged in part. He let the parents go free but said, you know, your kids uh, were useless to me when they were little, but I was feeding them and clothing them and giving them a place to live. Well, now they're older and they can work, and I want to get my money back. So he refused to let the children go free. And... uh it was illegal to educate a slave in Missouri. So, so the Holmeses were uh, Robin and Polly Holmes were uh, illiterate, um, and you know they knew that they would have to go to court in order to get their kids. But they, of course, couldn't read or write and knew nothing about the law. But they were fortunately uh, somehow able to get a. a, a uh, uh, I can't remember his first name, but his last name was Boise, and he was—he eventually became an Oregon Supreme Court justice to represent them, and they sued in habeas corpus um, in in Oregon's courts, and eventually got a ruling that it was illegal that there was could not be slavery in Oregon in the territory, and so Ford had to give the kids back, but one of them had died during the course of the litigation 
And uh, I, I was really moved, not so much by the legal stuff, which was interesting, but I have kids. And I was thinking, oh, my God, what would happen? And how would I feel if someone kidnapped my children? Everybody in Oregon knew who the kidnapper was and where they were being held, but I couldn't get them back because of the color of my skin. And I thought this is just a very sad and powerful story. So I, I, I took a shot at researching. I didn't know anything about Oregon history in 1860. I didn't know how people lived. Did, you know, did you brush your when you're when you're writing a novel set in a particular time? You've got to make it very realistic for the reader so they actually believe they're in that time period. And I didn't know, did people brush their teeth back then? Do they have toothpaste? Uh, how did you get a drink of water? Did you have a plastic bottle you took out of a refrigerator? Do you have to go to a well? What did you do? So it took me six years of research, uh, just in my spare time. And then I wrote a draft. And the draft uh, I sent to my agent uh, after about six, seven years of working on this project. And she said it was horrible. <laughs> so it was a horrible, awful book, and if she tried to sell it, it would destroy my career. So I said, okay, that's fine. I'm, I'll write some legal, more legal thrillers. So then after a couple of years, I had a, some, some time, uh, <clears throat> and uh, in between books, I had finished the book way ahead of schedule, and I thought, what do I do next? And I said, hey, I'm going to look at that historical novel. So I reread it, and I could see all these problems. Now as a more experienced writer, I had, I don't know, about seven or eight New York Times bestsellers under my belt. Rewrote it again, sent it to my agent. She said, this book is terrible. It's awful. I cannot <laughs> send this in. It would, you know, you'll be rude. So then about eight or nine years later, the same thing. I had a gap. I loved this, the idea. Um did some more rewriting, but didn't really change it that much, and gave it to my agent's daughter, who is now my agent, my Jean Nagar, my fabulous agent for years, retired, and her daughter took over, and she's fabulous also. She's an amazing agent. But she's also a really good editor. And she read the rewrite and said that the book was terrible and awful, but she actually sat me down and explained what was wrong with the book. And a lot of times I... I don't see problems, but if I'm, if I have explained to me what I'm doing wrong, I'm really good at fixing them. So I went back and I started from scratch. I wrote the whole book, completely re redid it. It's nothing like the three earlier uh, drafts, and and uh, it's a wonderful book now. And it was published by Harper, and I'm so proud of that book. It's it's about really serious topics like losing a spouse, uh, slavery, uh, all sorts of stuff. But it is a really good read. It's, it's got, it's, there's a murder mystery and there's a, a surprise ending in the middle of a murder trial uh, at the end of the book. So there's a lot of action and there's a lot of mystery, but it's also uh, probably the closest thing I've ever done to a literary novel. So that's Worthy Brown, and did you want me to talk about Woman with a Gun? Because that's got a cute story. Um, well, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm curious about that, too. Yeah. Okay, so people always ask me, where, you, where do your ideas come from? And that's the most fabulous thing is, you know, they come from all over. I'll be walking down the street, and 
some phrase will come into my head, and that'll be the base of a book. So I was invited to be the keynote speaker in a um, writer's conference in St. Simon Island, Georgia, which is a very swanky resort island. And there's a section of the island called the village where they have art galleries and uh, really good restaurants and boutiques and all sorts of cool stuff. And I was at breakfast in Palmer's Village Cafe uh, before going over to the to the um, writers conference, and the the owner of the cafe also owned an art gallery, so all the walls were decorated with photographs and oil paintings and watercolors. Uh, and after I finished eating, I went into the bathroom to wash up, and over the toilet was one of the most amazing photographs that I've ever seen. And if if the people that are listening to this want to uh, see that photo, just uh, Google woman with a gun, and it's the cover photograph. And this is a photograph. It's black and white. There's a woman in a wedding dress. She's standing uh, facing the ocean on a beach right about where the waves break, so the waves are right in front of her feet. You can't see her face or her front. And what makes the the um, the photograph so fascinating is behind her back she's holding a huge handgun um, it looked to me I don't know a lot about guns but it looked to me like it was the kind of gun that Wyatt Earp would have used at the OK Corral and I just looked at that thing I said what the hell is going on here did she kill her husband on, on her wedding night uh, is she going to kill herself? Is she waiting for someone to come in from the ocean that she's going to shoot? And so I ran out. Uh, I washed my hands first. But I ran out, and I uh, bought the photograph um, and then got the idea for the book from the photograph. So uh, I have that photograph up in my office. I, I still kept my law office to write in, and right as you walk in the door, there's the photograph, and I look at it every day, and, uh, that gave me the inspiration for that book. Well, it's also on the cover as well, and it is. It's truly an interesting photo, and I can see how yeah, it inspired it's, you. It, it's stunning. and I mean, it's one of the best photographs I think I've ever seen. Oh, man. It, yeah, amazing. Um, sometimes with your plots, you get into dicey and uncomfortable topics. I mean, you're talking about things like murder and rape and these these things that people, you know, they're not things we talk about all the time. So I'm curious, how do you balance dealing with those sensitive topics while also maintaining the readability factor of your books? Okay, well, first of all, you know, uh, I was a criminal defense lawyer for 25 years. So I represented people who killed other people, um, you know, I represent drug dealers and rapists and stuff. So, uh, after, you know, when you when you do that on a daily basis, you can be you you get used to dealing with very uncomfortable topics. But I have a couple of rules, and I do not believe in putting gratuitous sex or violence in into any of my books. Uh, so, you know. I realized there's a there's a really good a movie by Brian De Palma called Sisters, one of his early movies. 
And in it, there's a murder scene where this woman um, has a date with a guy, and when he wakes up in the morning, she comes, she kills him with a knife, and she stabs him. And, you know, your initial action is, you know, putting your hands over your eyes, and, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then she leaves, and the guy starts crawling across the floor, and he's trailing blood. And after a while, you sort of get a little nauseous. And then after this goes on and on and on, you actually start laughing because it gets too much. And I realized that, uh, A, when I, I write, I write a, a, a book, it's supposed to be entertaining. So I do like to scare people or shock them, but I don't want to make them throw up uh, because then they will, you know, they'll be uncomfortable. It's not enjoyable. Uh, I don't want to gross anyone out. So I try to keep a lot of my violence off uh, off screen, basically. Uh, I, I would say the freakiest book I ever wrote was Gone But Not Forgotten, which involves this most horrible human who ever lived. I tried to invent the most evil person ever. Uh, and he does torture women in horrible ways, but I never show any of that in the book. And uh, I, it's, it's the technique that I think Alfred Hitchcock and a lot of people use. Uh, basically, what you, if, if I had a, a scene with a serial killer and he's got a woman tied up on a bed and he comes in with all this uh, operating equipment, scalpels and stuff, and I have a 40-page torture scene, well, first of all, it's probably going to gross people out and they won't enjoy it. Secondly, uh, what the guy does might not be what's scary to the reader. So uh, I decided long ago it's much better to have the the person who's going to get tortured tied up, the serial killer walks in with the scalpels, and then you cut. And your reader is going to use their imagination to scare the hell out of themselves and save me a lot of trouble. Uh, with the sex scenes, I just don't write them very well. Uh, in the last instant, man, I had like a 20-page sex scene, and my uh, my editor, in big red letters on the manuscript, said this was really bad, and it reads like a bad TV movie of the week. And then every time I try to write a sex scene, my editors or my agent would insult me to the point where I I became impotent, uh, had no self-confidence <laughs> whatsoever. So. I decided let's do the old black and white movie thing where the couple embrace and kiss and then you cut. So I didn't want people making fun of me anymore, and that's why the sex scenes are short. <laughs> that's great. Um, one of the other things I love about your books is um, you really are a master at a twist. Do you plot mm -hmm. those ahead of time, or um, yeah, do you yeah. find them as you go? No, one of the things that, that that inspired me to be a mystery writer, when I was in elementary school, I, I read all of the Ellery Queen books. And Ellery Queen, I'm rereading actually some of them. He was probably the top mystery writer in the 30s and 40s. Uh, it's actually two people, Frederick Danny and Manfred Lee, who, who wrote under the pseudonym. But the, those books always had uh, a page about nine-tenths of the way through, and it was a blank page or, you know, it was a page in the middle that said challenge to the reader and said you now have all of the clues necessary to figure out who killed Mr. Jones. Can you figure out who the killer is? And I loved that. And so 
uh, I would say many of my books, including A Matter of Life and Death, have clues. And if you can figure out the clues correctly, you can figure out who done it. And I have a real good one in A Matter of Life and Death. There's there's a, a lot of twists in this book, uh, stuff hopefully the reader won't see coming. And there is a, a second murder case at the very end of the book. And Robin uh, sort of has a dream that inspires her to figure out how who the real killer is. And uh, it's it, there's a big glaring clue there. And if you can spot the clue, you can figure out who the who the murderer is. So uh, what I do is I do plot them out in advance. So the, I will not write a, a, a single word um, until I know the ending. I have to know who's the bad guy and how do they get caught. And uh, and to, to show I'm not lying, I got the one of my best books ever is Executive Privilege. And I got the idea for that book in 1995. It's Could the President of the United States Be a Serial Killer? And it was a great idea. I had all these characters and I had scenes in my head, but I couldn't figure out the ending. And it took me 10 years. I actually got the ending in 2005. Uh, when I was driving back from vacation from Central Oregon and trying to figure out, I just finished the book and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And then I had one of these brainstorms that, oh, my God, this is how we get the bad guy. So uh, I actually get the ending first. You know, like first thing is getting an idea. But ideas are teeny. Books are 400 pages. So I get this idea, and then I try to work out scenarios and characters, but I, I will not even start writing until I've got got that ending and whatever the twist is. Uh, and then if you got that, then you, as a writer, you can go backwards and put in clues and red herrings because um, you know where you have to end up. So cool, um, and you're so good at it. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, you know, this is really funny. I'm, I'm, I'm a techno idiot. I think it's www.philipmarglin.com. Uh, I have a website. If you if you you know Google Philip Marglin, my website comes up. Uh, I think I also have a Facebook page, but I'm. I don't know how to get on it, but it's really good. My, I, I have some fabulous. I'm serious. I have some fabulous people in New York who who uh, do my my website and my um, and and if you go to my if you if you go to my uh, website, there's an actual contact cell. And so if you have and I get this like I got three today, I think. Uh, but people, if they have questions, they they can type it in something. I don't know how to do it because, like I said, I don't know how to get on my own website. But you can you can ask me a question, and it goes right to my email. And I do know how to do email. So, so and I, I answer these questions immediately. As soon as someone asks me a question, I, I you know, I try to get an answer back uh, that day. Sometimes it takes me – sometimes I can't do it because I'm – I'm too busy, and I'll I'll do it the day you know after. But I always try to answer the the questions, or sometimes people just say they like the book, or they'll point out some uh, error in the book, which I actually appreciate it. Which 
if somebody is a reader and they find something that's uh, uh, you know a typo or a flaw in the in the book, something that we didn't spot or the copy editor didn't get, I really like it when they you know they write say I like your book, but did you know that you can't put a uh, something in a microwave with uh, tin foil, with aluminum foil on it, you know, and they'll say, oh, thanks. I'll, I'll make sure that that gets taken out. So uh, it, I've had some real weird screw-ups over the years, and I always appreciate it when the reader picks it up and picks it out because then you can usually correct it in a later edition, and then people don't think you're stupid anymore. So. <laughs> All right. Well, it has been an absolute thrill talking to you. And uh, for our listeners, pick up A Matter of Life and Death. Uh, it comes out March 9th, so when you hear this, it should be available. So get that. And make sure you pick up all of his other books, and especially, I would say, The Third Victim, which is the first one featuring Robin Lockwood. So, um, Phil, it's been an absolute thrill. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm sorry your partner wasn't able to, to get on, but uh, it's always fun talking with you. So uh, it was a half hour or so well spent. Oh, cool. Well, thank you so much, and uh, 